Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot Podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who have done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised as some of the topics can be distressing and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, Ian here. Welcome back to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. For those listeners who are relatively new, uh, welcome. Come on in. It's uh, nice to have you here. So I hope you find the last two episodes with Adrian describing the horrific Stockwell shooting uh, interesting. I certainly did. I've got lots and lots of really good feedback. Uh, People obviously find it. Uh, as moving and as interesting as I did. And this week, I'm going to be chatting to Warren Barlow. Warren is one of the most knowledgeable people in the UK around the operational control of these types of high threat terrorist incidents. And Warren pretty much wrote or wrote major chunks of the national guidance about how to do this and he ran over a hundred counter-terrorism exercises uh, which are very realistic uh, putting all of those people and resources and managers through their paces to simulate those scenarios as well as running those incidents um, in real life so really timely that uh, we're bringing Warren on to talk about all of this kind of stuff because you'll be able to hear from the horse's mouth, how things changed uh, directly as a result of the Stockwell incident. But before we do, uh, in a spirit of, you know, sharing my angst-ridden reflections on certain things, um, I was interviewed this morning on LBC by Nick Ferrari on his breakfast show, um, and it was all to do with the latest figures that have come out of government showing that crime outcomes have fallen yet again to a new low of 5.8%. That's 5.8% of total recorded crime. Um, and he wanted to speak to to me uh, about what I thought about that. Uh, I was really unhappy with the interview. Um, I thought he was rude. And uh, I know there's nothing terribly groundbreaking about saying that journalists are rude, but I thought he was particularly rude. Uh, he let the person who was on before me speak almost uninterrupted for, I think, three or four minutes at least, uh, whereas he had interviewed, interrupted me 
kind of about 30 seconds into it. And um, yeah, I wrote a very stinky email to the LBC producer after I'd been on. Uh, his, his name, uh, well, it doesn't matter what his name is, but uh, he was the person who invited me on. So uh, I sent him an email afterwards saying, um, Hi, I won't be doing that again in a hurry. He clearly has a bee in his bonnet about how shit the police are, but isn't remotely interested in understanding why policing is in such a mess. I explain everything in the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast for anyone with more than a nanosecond of attention and mental bandwidth. I'll leave it with you. Uh, he then came back to me later on this morning saying, Dear Ian, this is the great thing about podcasts, isn't it? You actually get a voice, don't you? Didn't, you couldn't have done this a few years ago. Right. Dear Ian, firstly, thanks for coming on this morning and helping contribute to what was one of our best hours of the week. I'm sorry you didn't enjoy the interview. All I would say is please don't take it personally in any way. Nick's views on the police are, for better or worse, strong and long established. And I agree that the juxtaposition of overall policing problems with an incident at Clackett Lane services yesterday, we'll come on to that, was far from a perfect comparison. However, I think you made your case well and hope you understand that given the premise of our show is to generate calls and discussion, it's the norm for guests to be challenged and for interviews to be shorter than ideally they would, they would be. Today's was especially short given the overrunning of our earlier interview with the Minister just before 8am, which was a shame given it was your first appearance. If you prefer not to come on again, then I understand. But if you're happy to contribute occasionally again in future, then we would still be pleased to have you. And just because Nick disagrees with you, it doesn't mean that he hasn't enjoyed speaking with you. Let me know what you think. In the meantime, have a good weekend. So, my my reply, which is uh, the final the final kind of... Don't worry, I'm not going to read every email that I've ever sent or received to you. That would be a bit dull. I just think it's quite important for you to understand how these things work. So I went back to him. Hi, Guy. Whoops, giving his name away. I'm happy to be challenged and I can hold my own with anyone, I think. In this case, I was asked to come on about 12 hours before with a brief from your producer. The time was brought forward, which was fine, but then he almost immediately interrupted my answer to his question and started wittering on about some ridiculous incident at Clackett Lane Services. God help us. Presumably, if the same people had closed down the petrol pumps and no police came out, he would be unhappy with that, question mark. I'd be happy to come on and have a sensible conversation with anyone, but I'd rather make my points on my podcast with people who actually want to listen rather than jump on their own little hobby horse. Policing is a deadly serious business and it's been completely shafted by politicians from this government. And now, to add insult to injury, people like Nick trivialise it with infantile observations like he did this morning. I think I'll give it a miss, thanks. Ian. So there you go. The joys of uh, doing radio interviews. Um, I'll let you actually uh, play. I'll actually play that interview um, in a moment. And then after that, we'll go straight into the interview with Warren Barlow. Nick Ferrari of Breakfast on LBC. Yes, as I say, so Tony, that will be probably forever to condemn you. That's later in the show. So let's come to this. 
record low, 5.8% of crimes solved by police. This as serious crimes, and of course, if you're the victim of any crime, it's serious. I do understand that. You know, even if they nick your strimmer out the back garden, it's pretty serious to you. I get it. But serious crimes such as rape, murders and violence rise. Home office figures show the proportion of all offences resulting in a charge fell from 7.5% to 5.8% in a year. And when records began, which is not actually that long ago, I, I can't believe when records began, but I, I imagine it's the new way of doing it, because I, I have to think that in the 90s they kept some form of records. But anyway, 2014 through 15, if we go back there, well, the, sales, the rate then was 15.5%. Now it's 5.8%. Why? Sex offences, including rape, have hit a record high, up 22%. Rape, virtually the same, up 21%. Again, why? Murders, as we know them, or homicides, as they're called, because in some instances it not goes down on murder. I do understand why they do that. Well, they're up by 14%. So it's up, up, up. But sadly, the success rate is down, down, down. Now, you may recall in one of her last appearances on Call the Commissioner, the former commissioner of the Met, Dame Cressida Dick, appeared here on LBC at the end of last year. And this is as LBC had done an exclusive poll which suggested the level of public trust for the Met was at 51%. Just, just a, so nearly more people didn't trust them than did. This was her response. Nearly half of London, 49%, only 49%. That's a shocking figure. 51% say they trust the Met, so 49 don't have full trust in the Met. If it is the case that your poll is representative and it has dropped to that, then that is, that is a challenge, and that's why I'm doing a number of different things. I've mentioned the investigators. They're going to be looking at sexual offences alleged and, and domestic abuse alleged by my officers. We've, we are re responding, of course, to the non-statutory review that the Home Secretary has announced. We are working with Baroness Casey next year to look at all our standards, everything to do with our culture, how we treat each other. Former Commissioner Dame Cressida Dick to Donna Jones, who is Conservative Police and Crime Commissioner for Hampshire and the Isle of Wight, National Lead for Victims and Serious Organised Crime at the Association of Police and Crime Commissioners. Thank you for coming on the line, Commissioner. What do you, what are the factors you put down for such a poor rate of, of solving crime? Good morning. Good morning, Nick, and thanks for having me on to talk about this really important issue. Well, you know, I mean, it is startling and it is a real concern. And for me, as somebody whose job it is to hold my chief constable to account, as well as speaking for victims nationally, rates like this are alarming. I do, however, just want to give a little bit of context, if I can, Go to yeah. why this number's come down. So that following um, Greater Manchester Police's uh, failure to report over 80,000 crimes, the Home Secretary clearly took umbrage with this, and, and quite rightly so. And a couple of years ago, um, for all police forces, all 43 police forces, including the Met, uh, something called CDI came in, Crime Data Integrity. And what that meant is, is that if as a police officer you are taking a statement from a victim who tells you, let's say, for example, um, they have been raped by a family member, uh, but they also then tell you that there have been uh, you know, historical rapes by those family members um, or by somebody that they know um, that, are, that perhaps date back 10 years or so. Now, where there is evidence for every single crime, they will, of course, pursue those. Um, and in some cases with rape, they will, you know, the jury will be asked to take into consideration other incidents as well. But police forces 
detectives now have to log every single crime. So if you have been, um, you know, assaulted by your partner um, and you say, well, this has been going on for five or six years and the police say, well, roughly how many times this has been assaulted by your partner, they have to now log the historical crimes, even where there is no evidence present and it is almost impossible to investigate the crime. So they may be there because they were called out to an incident in the last hour um, and there could be very clear evidence of, you know, the house being smashed up, neighbours witnessing things or whatever. But they, so that, that's why there has been an increase in the number of crimes reported. But many of those will be ones where the police are not able to investigate because they are historical um, or where the victim says, yes, it's historical and I don't want you to do anything about it. I just want you to take uh, to investigate this recent assault from an hour ago. Now, that's a very important point that you make, Commissioner, but would you accept, and that's a very grave level of crime, if we come to the more everyday, if we use that expression, where cars are broken into, homes are broken into, garages are broken into, would you accept the clear-up rate there is nothing like where it should be? Yes, I would. And this is one of the things that I'm particularly trying to push in my own thoughts as well. So over the last five to six years, um, because of the constraints that police forces have been working in, so this is sort of to kind of explain why police forces have done this, they have focused very much on the high harm. So on ABHs, GBHs, rapes, murders, you know, serious, serious assaults, those are the sorts of things where they are prioritising correctly. Now, but the medium level harm crime, things to do with, for example, antisocial behaviour, perhaps burglary or, or a break in if you're shed or bike theft. These are the sorts of crimes where the police have not been prioritising them because they haven't had the capacity. So for me now, as a police commissioner, it's my job to make sure that I'm pushing my chief constable to say, you must also be focusing not just on those high harm crimes, but also on the medium level crimes. And I think that focus on high harm crime because of police capacity or lack of capacity, coupled with the crime data integrity, has almost created a public, a uh, perfect storm, sorry, um, which is what Thank you for your time, Donna Jones. You're Conservative Police and Crime Commissioner of Hampshire and the Isle of Wight. Your National Lead for Victims and Serious Organised Crime at the Association of Police and Crime Commissioners. Let's turn to Ian Donnelly, who's been brave enough to do it. He's a former senior police officer, 30 years' experience at the West Midlands and the Met Police. He's written a book, Tango, Juliet, Foxtrot, How Did It All Go Wrong for British Policing, published recently. Joins me now. Mr Donnelly, how did it all go wrong for British Policing? Good morning. Morning, Nick. Thanks very much for having me on. Um, well, like like everything in life, uh, Nick, everything happens for a reason, doesn't it? And uh, the reality is, and this isn't a political point because I'm not a political person. I made that very clear in my book. Um, but the reality is that uh, this current government, way back, this, this all started back in 2010 when this government came in, I'm, I'm afraid to say, under David Cameron and Theresa May, uh, Theresa May, um, at David Cameron's, um, you know, encouragement, yes. yep. took, took an axe to um, public safety and policing in the UK. Um, 20,000 officers were lost. 23,000 members of police staff were lost. Uh, since that time, 75% of police stations in London have been closed and sold off. 50% of police stations in England and Wales have been closed and sold off. And uh, we now are in this very sorry situation where um, police officers are, uh, nobody really fully understands what to expect from the police anymore. The police themselves don't really understand what it is that they're there to do anymore. Um, and uh, if you look at the numbers, for example, um, uh, there was a recent report um, where published where, uh, showing that only in England and Wales, we only have two, 228 officers 
per 100,000 of the population compared to a, to an average in Europe. Mr. Doring, yesterday at um, Clackett Lane on the M25, a bunch of Herberts decided to glue themselves to petrol pumps. 14 blokes and women from Surrey Police, 14 were able to scramble to that. Just stand and watch. You can't talk about lack of numbers. 14 of them just watch these blokes by the petrol pumps. Yeah, well, I can't speak about that because I wasn't there. I don't know what the decision was. Well, I, I could take you around there. the M20, but we've been covering these, you know, these um, Extinction Rebellion. When they went, and they just, they, they got their yellow vests on, and they come, and they come pouring out of the trucks, and they just watch. This, this, yeah. They've got the cops when they want to. Yeah, well, the point I was trying to make before you interrupted me was that in 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 in, in uh, Europe, the average number for uh, 100,000 is three. Okay, you, okay. I know you're quoting we've these got, numbers, got, but my, my listeners would say when they want to. I mean, if if they close down the M25 because someone's dropped a, a liter of diesel, you cannot move for police vehicles. So they're there when they we're just not using them right. Yeah, well, there's, there's, other, there's other factors there as well. So uh, what I'd say is that the entire criminal justice system is broken. Uh, the crime prosecution service are horribly underfunded, just as much as the police are. The police now spend 40% of their time dealing with mental health issues uh, rather than dealing with crime. Um, they, they spend 3 million hours a year dealing with missing people, which equates to 1,562 1, full-time officers a year. So the, the, the demands being made on policing now are, are out of all proportion to the resources available to them. Ian Donnelly, thank you. You're a retired senior police officer. You host the Django, I'm sorry, see, Tango, Tango Juliet Foxtrot. That's Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Um, we'll come to your... Have you... Hey, Warren, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, Excellent. how are you, mate? Yeah, I'm very well. Just connecting. Why has my camera not on? Uh, one second. Hey, there, there he is. is yeah. Well, I don't know if it's better. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you. How are you doing? Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I can hear you fine, mate. Yeah, all good. Yeah, I know. Excellent. Look at us with our headphones on like a pair of flipping. I think you're oh. muted. I can't hear you. Oh, no, I'm okay. I'm not muted. Can you hear right. me? I can hear you now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. excellent. Yeah, yeah. No, same. Look at us with our foot, with our headsets on, like a pair of um, middle-aged football um, pundits. <laughs> <laughs> Late middle-aged in my case, probably. <laughs> and me. <laughs> <laughs> now, how are you doing? You well? Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thanks ever so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really grateful, and it's really it's really timely, actually, because I've um, you know I just uploaded the second part of the Jean Charles de Menezes um, catastrophic uh, you know tale of woe and errors uh, today, and you know so you're a really good person to be speaking to now because you know you and I. Well, I'm really interested. I'm more interested in what you have to say because I know what I think. But you know, you can talk about your extensive knowledge in this area, can't we? Uh, well, yeah, I had a little bit of uh, dealings with it, yeah, uh, to, to some degree. So, uh, and I, I listened to the first podcast. I, I saw it pop up on LinkedIn, but I've uh, I've not uh, managed to listen to the second second part of it yet. And I've got I've got to say, uh, you know, it's it's a must listen. It really is. If you do want to learn lessons and understand what it's like from the perspective of the people that's actually involved, 
yeah it's it's definitely a must listen so yeah uh, yeah definitely it's very sobering isn't it really but yes um, definitely so before we come on to talk about anything remotely to do with um you know counterterrorism or uh you know your areas of expertise um let's talk about your initial sort of background your decision to join the police when you joined where you joined and you know decision to join what was that all about was this something that you'd sort of always hankered after so tell me about your your joining the job in the first place well i actually uh i actually applied for the RAF when i was a youngster when i just left uh, uh, school and went to sixth form college and i applied for the RAF and uh, my uh dream was to join the RAF basically mm-hmm. and uh and then i met a young lady and, uh, and things change, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, life decisions change and stuff like that. So uh, I decided not to join the RAF and uh, I got a job as a central eating engineer, funny enough. Uh, but I always always had an inkling, I think, to do something like military policing, that type of thing, you know. So it was always a dream to do that. So uh, I applied for Great Manchester Police uh, and uh, luckily enough uh, in... Uh, it was 1988 when I was accepted, but I actually joined on the 2nd of January, 1989. All and right, I, okay. And I joined Great Master Police and uh, uh, spent six years, I've got a six-year itch, I think, because I spent six years in uniform, Yeah. Uh, mainly around the Cheatham Hill area, for those that know Manchester, and the Collierst area. What's that like? Because I don't know Manchester. Yeah. Is that what described Cheatham Hill then? Yeah, it's an inner city area, so uh, uh, you know, mixed communities, inner city, high crime. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's 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 a very challenging area, or it was then, and I've no no doubt for the young officers that are there now, it's uh, probably just as challenging. Right. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I. Uh, I did six years of uniform, did a number of different roles in uniform, and then. Yep. Uh, I applied for CID because uh, I wanted to better myself and uh, <laughs> and uh, and do something different. So I applied for CID as it was at the time, uh, and lucky enough, I was accepted. Uh, went through my uh, CID traineeship and that, and uh, we detected. Like the, Olymp- was that the Olympic drinking championships was it? Uh, well, it was funny enough actually. I did my uh, I did my CID course, my detective training course at Manchester, and at the time it was the first course that Manchester had ever run, and it was actually in 1996 during the European Championships when all the bars were open <laughs> all nights, 24 hours oh, a day. Oh so what could possibly go wrong? Eh? Yeah, exactly. So look, I can't, can't say jugs of water got used uh, quite often in the in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so I can remember. Uh, can I, I can remember my first visit to Greater Manchester was when I was in Special Branch, and this is probably back in about uh, oh gosh, 1996, 97. So it was after the Manchester bombing of the Arndale Centre, where the IRA bombed. Uh, anyone, anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, if you go on Google, uh, on YouTube rather, and search for Manchester bombing 1996, you'll see the IRA um, pretty much devastating the centre of Manchester with a single explosion. And there's one particular video actually uh, taken from the helicopter um, from above, as I'm sure you've seen it, Warren, which yeah, is, uh, which 
I don't think the helicopter pilot realised just the extent of the explosion because it, I think there was a bit of there was a bit of fruity language used by the pilot, wasn't there? When yes. this thing when this thing went off, didn't it? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, and luckily, luckily, not uh, you know, uh, the, the they were able to enter the city and, uh, and nobody was killed were they on that uh, during that uh, particular attack. But yeah, it completely devastated the centre of Manchester and. Uh, uh, some people would say Manchester, you know, they did a good job of that area. To be fair. Yeah, I've heard various things said that you know uh, they were they were probably one of you know it, it it came with mixed blessings, didn't it? You know, yeah, obviously yes. massive massive devastation, but in many ways it resulted in great improvements, didn't it? Uh, it certainly did, yes. Architecturally to <laughs> centre of Manchester. Well, the outs- well the outside of the Arndale Centre at the time, a lot of people described it as because it was like the uh, beige greeny tiles all the around all the way around the outside and some people said it was it was like the in, interior of a very rough toilet block <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, I went up there with um with uh with my dci at the time um no, no need to talk about why we were there but um the social side of it all i can say is it was fairly grueling um and uh we got taken round um it felt like most of the pubs in Manchester city centre, and I'm I'm not sure whether they 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 decided to get the Met wankers pissed <laughs> <laughs> as pissed as they possibly could. I'm sure they were probably pouring their pints down the toilet or into flower pots or something because <laughs> because there was no way that that I, I was I was in a terrible mess. I remember that night. But yeah. Um, yeah, there was that's the sign of the times as much as anything else, wasn't it? There was a very boozy culture in policing at that time, wasn't there? Yeah, so well, I was in I was in CID at Salford, and uh, uh, for those that know, Salford, if you if you Google like Ordsell and the major crime that was in Ordsell at the time, that was the area that I covered basically, and uh, the Broughton uh, Park area of uh, of Salford, and it was quite a troublesome area. There's, there's the usual shootings, robberies. Uh, you know, the, the, all the serious crimes that you would expect in, in that area. But uh, in those days, you know, you, you, you played out and you, you know, as well as working hard, you know. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, I do remember there was a pub on the uh, on the division that uh, the, the even because all the police stations had codes. So it was like it was the F division. So they call it Foxtrot 1, Foxtrot 2, Foxtrot 3, mm. etc. And the pub was Foxtrot Five, <laughs> <laughs> so they get on the radio and say, uh, "We'll see you at Foxtrot Five after work." <laughs> so, uh, uh, different, uh, different times. <laughs> very much so, yeah, very much so. So, so you spent how long did you spend in the sort of mainstream sort of CID then? It's six years. That's why I said I've got six oh, right, years. Okay. So I did six six years in CID, and then in two thousand and one, uh, I I think I got to the point where by. And I, I suppose everybody goes through it where I'd been to every job before. Hmm. You know, it's, you know, I, I remember going to, I think it was an armed robbery in Pendleton Island in Salford. And, and it was, it was like shelling peas because I've done it before. Yeah. Uh, I've been to murder inquiries many times and things like that. The usual major crimes. And it just mm-hmm. felt as though I was treading water. Yeah. So I thought, well, I want something different. And I saw, you know, an advertisement for uh, Great Manchester Police Special Branch. Yeah. So so uh, I applied for it and I was told, you've got no chance, Warren, because uh, whoever 
uh, that job will be uh, earmarked for somebody already. I said, well, well, if it is, it is. I'll give it a try. And I gave mm-hmm. it a try. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, uh, I blew the socks off the interviewers because uh, yeah. uh, I was offered the job straight away, basically. So, uh, which which I was glad of. And I so I joined Special Branch and then the seven year itch ended there because yeah. I've done I've done that many things in CT, you know, uh, yeah. since that I've just thoroughly, I just thoroughly enjoyed my career. Thoroughly yeah, enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, well, certainly you've got. Uh, I probably use this ex- overuse this expression, but you know, you've got you've got kinds of terrorism running through you like a stick of Blackpool rock. Um, you know, and certainly, you know, my recollection of you was, you know, one of the most knowledgeable people in the country, uh, particularly when it came came to sort of operations rooms and all of that kind of stuff. So, so obviously, you came in. Um, so, special. Let's just talk about before we talk about you know the jobs you did and. Uh, those that you enjoyed and why, et cetera, or whatever. Um, let's talk about the differences between GMP Special Branch and Met Special Branch. So so I was Met Special Branch um, at that time and had been for quite some time. And correct me if I'm wrong, but here there was kind of quite a lot of rivalry, wasn't there, between certainly the big metropolitan forces like uh, Greater Manchester, West Midlands, uh, probably Scotland, and the Met. And, you know, the Met, the Met have kind of always had this sort of uneasy relationship, I suppose, with other big forces, haven't they? I mean, how did you find that in those days? Yeah, there definitely was. I, I, you go on your initial special branch course, and uh, your initial special branch course, you you go down to London and you spend some time in London with all the partner agencies that that, that we work, work, work with. Uh, but also, you go to New Scotland Yard and you have some briefings from the staff at New Scotland Yard. And I do remember, I distinctly remember a DI at the front of the audience from the Met who sat there and uh, in front of a load of officers from the provincial forces around the country who were brand new to special branch and, and vast majority of them come from a CID background because that was just like difference to the Met yeah. where, the, where, the, where the Met tended to recruit career special branch people, you know, yeah. that you know yeah. through the uh, recruitment process were in the provincial forces. It tended to be, you had to be detectives. I was an exhibits officer. I'd been an exhibits officer, forensic officer on uh, major crime jobs in the past on murder yeah. inquiries and stuff. So I had to prove that I had those skills in order to come into special branch. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm sat there in this audience of about 30 other people and this uh, uh, DI sits there and he says, uh, just to let you know, if you ever need anything, come to us because we only employ the best you know and uh, (laughs) you could imagine went went down well (laughs) yeah you could imagine the impression that that gave and and that's no reflect I've worked with some fantastic people in the Met fantastic people I've worked with some fantastic people all around the country Uh, but it really did set the tone for that course yeah yeah yeah. you know And, and sometimes that arrogance that people get and I've always tried not to be arrogant in what I've done and probably I've probably failed a couple of times you know but I've tried I've always that I learned a lesson there not to be arrogant and not to mm. not to downtrod other people if you can help it yeah well that's funny well well I'm sort of jumping ahead a little bit and we'll come back we'll backtrack again but while we're on that subject uh it's funny because uh my memories of you the early memories of you was that I was I was probably a bit of a dick actually um when I was a when I was a DI in the counterterrorism unit, so I'd obviously gone off 
to do other things, you know, sergeant, uniform inspector, detective inspector, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then I end up coming back to counterterrorism in the West Midlands during the sort of mid 2000s, sort of mid to late 2000s. And um, it was really funny because, because I was on the naughty list, wasn't it? I was on the naughty list for, for failing to come and get myself trained on the ops room managers course because I thought I was Johnny Big Bollocks, didn't I? And I didn't need to do that. And because I'd been, you know, running all these big jobs in Birmingham and I'd background of special brunch in London. And I thought, oh, fuck that, I'm not going to go on that stupid course, you know. And uh, I ended up getting um, dragged into <laughs> the chief superintendent's office said, Ian, mate, we need you to go on this course because Warren Barlow's doing his pieces. <laughs> keeps ringing us up and saying, why isn't, why isn't Inspector Donnelly coming on his option manager's course? And I was like, oh, do I have to? And, and he was like, yes, you do. I can get up there and go on the course. So anyway, they, I, they grind me down and I went up. And you know what? It was a flipping brilliant course. It was absolutely brilliant. And I think I did actually end up eating humble pie, didn't I, in the end? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I did. I, I was quite relentless at chasing people down because, uh, you know, CT headquarters would give me a list of all the people in all the various forces who needed training. And I had this massive spreadsheet of all the people that needed training, whether the surveillance monitors, you know, intelligence development officers, whether the intelligence managers, uh, uh, option managers, SIOs, even CT commanders. I used to chase the CT commanders down, and, uh, and it was quite amusing at times. You know, when you when you when you're telling an ACC to get the backside into the option. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. and, and fair play to you, fair play to you, because it must be it must have been a thankless task uh, chasing idiots like me. You know, and and you know this. That's the thing, isn't it? You can get a bit arrogant, can't you? Whenever you've actually been running, I mean, we were running an ops room at that time. It was phenomenally busy. Oh my God. You know, we had so many jobs um, going on back to back. And then we had some very big jobs, which you were probably involved in as well, I'm sure. Um, and there is that sort of slight arrogance, isn't there? You know, uh, of like, well, what's the point of going on a course when I'm doing the job every day, blah, blah, blah. But what it did give me was, uh, a much much better understanding of all of the sort of interdependencies I suppose uh, in between all the different um, you know actors um, and whatnot but we'll come on to that in a minute we'll, we'll talk about um, so when you came into special branch um, bearing in mind this is 2001 yeah uh, 2001 so yeah. post 9-11 um, what was your kind of bread and butter kind of stuff what, what kind of stuff were you doing kind of day to day well I, I... I joined in August 2001, and if you remember, 9-11 is actually mm. September. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> yeah. So we can blame you then, can't we? <laughs> so I, I remember joining in August 2001, and uh, within, I think, two or three weeks, I'd turn around to the DI and say, I, I want to go back to division. This is not for me. Uh, because uh, Special Branch in those days in Manchester was... It was a weird place. It was mm. weird. Uh, they would get all the broadsheets delivered to the office first thing in the morning, and they'd be sat there reading the broadsheets, feet up on the desk and stuff yeah. like that. I turned around to my mentor, who was mentoring me at the time, and uh, and, I'd, and I'd say, oh, I've just got this report. You know, Can you have a look at it for me? Uh, excuse me, Warren. Uh, 
I don't start till nine. It's three, it's three minutes two, you know. And you get you get that. It was weird. It was a weird. It was a weird office to work in, and I didn't get it. I didn't get it at first. And I didn't feel as though I fitted in mm. at all, mm. uh, you know. And I did hand, source handling courses and all that. I was a source handler in CID, so I did my uh, source handling course. They refer to it as something else in CT, don't they? But yeah, I did yeah, my yeah. I did my source handling course in in SB, and uh, uh, you know, and I just didn't feel as though I fitted in, to be honest. Now I, I wanted out, and then we had nine eleven, and yeah. that ch- that changed everything. Yeah. Yeah. Changed everything. We yeah. got, and I didn't think we were busy. I thought people, there were far too many people. It was, I don't know what you were like in, in uh, London or West Midlands, but in Manchester, I think a lot of people were treading water. Hmm. And, yeah. and I suppose I upset a few people because I was like this enthusiastic detective come from division, you know, wanting to get my hands dirty, wanting to do stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and people were treading water. So yeah, it yeah. wasn't, wasn't for me, but nine uh, eleven changed everything, and we we they suddenly had to. And I didn't think we were very professional, personal. You know, and I feel so. People may listen to this who know me from past, and they know I'm an honest person, and I'll say it. I think a lot of people, you know, they they, they taught a good job, but actually mm. the delivery of the good job was not really there. Yeah, uh, yeah. they needed to improve. They needed to enhance their capabilities, and yeah, uh, yeah. and and I'd like to think I, I played a part in doing that yeah. over the years. I mean, this is probably, I'm probably going to incur the wrath of lots of ex-special branch officers from around the country when I say this, but my impressions from those days, because I was in Met Special Branch at that time, my impression from those days was that the other forces, 10 special branches, tended to be very reactive to what the security service wanted them to do, um, rather than sort of generating their own kind of work, so to speak. Yeah, um, definitely. Work, Whereas I think in the Met, the Met was, you know, very much um, on an equal footing with the security service in London. Um, and on that basis, we tended to, you know, generate a lot, be a lot more proactive. But certainly that period of time was was kind of between the end of the provisional IRA campaign um, and, and before 9-11. And uh, we had obviously, you know, a fair bit of dissident IRA activity here and there going on but but in terms of the intensity of operations it was it was quite a quiet period wasn't it and yeah. then and then you got 9-11 and everything changed and everything yeah definitely definitely so uh, yeah I agree with you and I think they, uh, they had to up the game and some people left it wasn't for them because I think that, that they got found out to be fair mm. uh, but uh, other people stepped up to the plate and they, mm. and they did a fantastic job I worked with some people who were, who were at that period of time who you know at one time I didn't really rate them that much but then all of a sudden uh, they had to work and they, mm. they actually showed that they did have the capabilities and they yeah. had a heck of a lot of knowledge and understanding to do the job to a high yeah, standard yeah. yeah yeah so um so my kind of um, you know, if somebody said to me, word association game, Warren Barlow, I'd say operations rooms. So that's kind of <laughs> I see you as being the guru uh, of that sort of world. So when did you when did you enter that world for the first time? Uh I I started well, I 
run jobs in CID previously. So in CID, you, as you're aware, major jobs go go to a major incident team, don't they? And, and uh, uh, a major inquiry team. So and it's run on it's run on homes, and I've worked on a few major inquiries in my time. But then jobs that didn't meet that threshold, you had to run yourself using what's referred to in policing terms as the paper management system. So uh, so it's a card and index system, and uh, and uh, you, you'd run that. Now, when I got into special branch, and then the work started to increase. And at the time, when you ran a surveillance team in those days in Manchester, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, brief, I'd brief the surveillance team, I'd do a briefing pipe, brief the surveillance teams, they'd go out on the job and they would ring me and they'd ring me and say, Warren, is there any chance you could do a PNC check on this car? Or is, yeah. there any, is there any chance you could do some inquiries about this address? Mm. Other than that, I never got any feedback from them at all until they finished their deployment when, yeah. I, when I got what they'd done. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, we then had a job where we had multiple deployments. And uh, I do remember the DI at the time in our office, there was a guy called uh, 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 Adrian Roberts, he was called, mm. in, in our office, a DI, and then Heather Denton is, an, is an, another boss of mine, who basically said, Warren, is there any chance you can uh, uh, come into the ops room? Because you've run paper management systems in CID before, haven't you? And you've done this type of thing. Come into the ops rooms and give us a hand with this because we've got multiple surveillance teams out. We need to like manage them. And so I did. And I then put a system in place uh, uh, to run it. Over a period of time, I put a system in place. And it seemed to be quite successful. And mm. uh, and it's, you know, and it, 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 it was nothing from uh, anything uh, special or anything like that. It was just from my knowledge Mm. of running jobs and my i'm one of these i's cross all all the t's and dot all the i's so mm. I, put, I put this system in place and we we ran a number of jobs and then the the probably the most famous job that uh i set the option up to run as far is operation pathway uh mm. don't, are you aware of operation no, pathway yeah, Operation Pathway is the one that uh, the Assistant Commissioner Bob Quick went down Downing Street oh, and, un- yes. and unfortunately showed an operational order to the waiting press. All right, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, at the time, I'd set up the option in Manchester. We were running on 11 subjects on 24-7 with 11 surveillance teams. Yeah. You can you can imagine the size and scale of that because you've, yeah, yeah, you've been involved yeah. in these types of jobs. Yeah. Uh, and then as Bob Quick went down Downing Street and showed this operational order to the weighted press, and if people are listening, they can just, if they uh, uh, if they Google Lord Carlisle and Operation Pathway, they'll see that Lord Carlisle's done a review of it, and uh, mm-hmm. and the the, the, the uh, all this information is available on the internet for them yeah. to search for. Yeah. Uh, but basically, Bob Quick went down Downing Street, showed this operational order, and then uh, Superintendent came into the ops room, tapped me on the shoulder and said, Warren, uh, we've had an issue in on Downing Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need all our subjects getting under control now, yeah. and uh, we need them all uh, uh, detaining. So we then put a, we then put an operational plan in place in order to do that. And I think that was about one o'clock in the afternoon, mm-hmm. and and I think by five p.m. something like that or half five, uh, every single person that we that we wanted was detect- successfully detained, and we'd had them under control. Some of them were with firearm strikes. Some yeah. of them were unarmed strikes, but uh, basically they were all detained. And it was a result of Operation Pathway that I was then approached, uh, could I 
uh, come to London and work out at 10 Victoria Street yeah. and, help, and help to write the new option uh, manual yeah, uh, yeah. because it had been drafted out, which was called, the, the manual at the time was called the Key Function and Practitioner's Guide. It had been drafted out and they'd asked me to read over it and help to uh, make sure it's fit for purpose and, and write it. And I then I think I spent about five years in London from that point uh, working right. at working at a 10 Victoria Street, mainly on the Optree programme. Because once the manual was written and signed mm. off, it was then a case of writing and designing the training that goes with the manual. Yeah, uh, yeah. because so. it was really interesting for me, um, having left counterterrorism policing in, uh, let me see, 2002, that's when I moved up to uh, West Midlands and I went, you know, off, you know, doing various things, uniform sergeant, uh, Uniform Inspector, DI, child abuse, all of this kind of stuff. So I was away from it during the period of time that you're describing. And um, and then when I came back to counterterrorism, and I, I, my first job that I was given as a DI was running the, the counterterrorism police operations room, CTPRs, I was like gobsmacked by how much things had changed in, in that time. So, I mean, if I describe, if I describe how things were done you know, back in the day before you kind of helped to professionalize the approach. Um, well, I've got to be used, careful with the word professionalize because that suggests that the way we did it before was unprofessional. I don't think it was unprofessional. It was, it was, it was a tried and tested method that we used in London, I suppose, and had used very successfully for many years and had arrested an awful lot of terrorists during, during the course of that time, uh, predominantly uh, provisional IRA, I suppose. But, but effectively, you would have a operations room staffed by um, a number of individuals with specific roles. Um, some of those would be individuals who would monitor the communications from a surveillance team out on the ground. They would record longhand um, on carbonated green A4 sheets uh, what was happening out on the ground. They would then rip those off and hand them to an option manager. It was probably a DS who would read them. And, and make decisions as to uh, what needed to happen next. So the high priority actions, I suppose, would then be generated um, from that in terms of go and research this address or this vehicle or this person or whatever, uh, someone who's featuring out on the ground. Um, but obviously when I came back uh, to counterterrorism, it was a bit of an eye opener to say the least. Clearly, huge amounts of money had been pumped into counterterrorism during that period of time, post 9-11. And there were more flipping bells and whistles and more technology in those places than you could shake a stick at, wouldn't there? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think the, the key, uh, well, the, <clears throat> the progression of ops rooms was instigated as a result of the Stockwell Inquiry. Yeah. Uh, and I know Adrian's been on, hasn't he, on, yeah. uh, on previous yeah. podcasts talking about the events that led up to the shooting of John Charles Jimenez. And uh, then uh, as a result of that, obviously, there was the Stockwell Inquiry. And uh, uh, Stockwell 1 made, I think they made uh, 16 recommendations. And uh, uh, one of the recommendations in particular was around professionalising the uh, the uh, training and exercising and learnt, and learning lessons from the events of the twenty second of July, two thousand mm. uh, and five, uh, and that fed into uh, the uh, 
CTPOR, Counterterrorism Police Operations Room uh, training program, which I was then asked to lead on. So, uh, and uh, but if I'll be straight, I, I stole a course from the Met to be fair, because the Met used to run extreme threat training yeah. uh, out of their ops room, which in essence was a couple of surveillance teams uh, on the ground with firearms teams, a couple of stooges out on the ground. Uh, and it was a two-day course with a live deployment, and it was to train their ops room staff and the command decision-making. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and I went to observe that and I just thought it was fantastic, absolutely mm -hmm. fantastic. Uh, so, uh, you know, like any good police officer, I then stole a good idea and I actually incorporated those elements and probably enhanced it and built on it. But that was only, only because you that's what life's all about, isn't it? Trying to uh, improve on things. So, you know, yeah. built, built on it, but I built on a really, really fantastic product that was already in place, which, uh, which to be fair, the Met was running uh, for yeah. a num number of years before I came along yeah. with, these, with the Counterterrorism Police Operations Room course. And I've got to say, all the staff I worked with uh, out of uh, the ops room uh, at the time were brilliant, absolutely brilliant. As you know, the from the managers uh uh all the way down to uh you know the civilian staff and the and the police constables and that that i work with who supported me no end in order to deliver what we wanted to deliver and also the firearms teams they were brilliant you know we we ended up uh, i was running the option program from 2009 to the 20, 2012 olympics because we were asked to upskill all the uh assets in readiness for the olympic games yeah in 2012 so uh, we were running monthly uh, uh training programs which generally would have three surveillance teams three firearms teams we had seven stooges on the ground playing the bad guys mm. uh, we'd, we'd have three ops rooms teams we'd have uh, ct commanders sometimes with a ct commander shadowing we'd have sios deputy sios we'd have export export staff there secos we, we brought in more and more and then we looked at more about interoperability so you bring in like your, your national interagency liaison officers so your nylos from the ambulance and fire service and uh, so, and it was about building uh, a network of, of people who had a full understanding of what it's like if, in a critical instant, if something went wrong. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, and that's what I've tried to build on, you know, yeah. ever, ever since, really. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, we're not going to talk about the specific technology and stuff, but um, no. that the 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 biggest the biggest impact on me, I suppose, in terms of the biggest eye opener for me was the technology, how unbelievably advanced it had become, um, and the capabilities uh, to be able to do all sorts of things from the operations room were were, were phenomenal, and I'm, I've no doubt whatsoever that they're they're even better now than they were before. Um, but I think the 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 big thing for me really was the and the, and the proof of the pudding is always in the eating isn't it um because uh, very quickly birmingham assumed the rather unwelcome mantle of the um you know the starting point for so many extreme uh, islamic extremist conspiracies in the uk and on the 20 and the on the july the 21st bombers most of them were arrested in birmingham one day yes um and and there was many other jobs that emanated from birmingham during that time so as the as the ops room manager in uh birmingham 
we, we were we were very very busy um and the uh the the biggest thing i suppose apart from technology the next thing for me i suppose was that absolute clarity of um, responsibility in terms of the specific roles of individuals that were that you know there was a time when people could just sort of you know way back way back when there's a time when people could just sort of wander into an ops room couldn't they you know um and uh so and, and if they had a the more senior rank they had the the less likely they would be told to fuck off wouldn't they um because yeah. pe people didn't want to say to a superintendent um, I'm sorry, sir, ma'am, but you there's, you don't need to be here. So can you please leave? That just didn't happen. Whereas by the time I'm talking about and you're talking about, if you didn't have a specified role in that room, you did, you weren't in there, were you? No, yeah, it, it, it was interesting when you when you get the log out and you say, well, okay, then you can you sign this log then that you're here, time and date it, and put your role on that log, and they'd say, oh, it's all right, I'm just leaving. Yeah, okay, thank you. <laughs> Funny that, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, so yeah, so a massive, massive uplift in terms of professionalism. Um, and uh, you were you were also as well as as well as that kind of role of professionalizing the approach of the the operational side of things. You had a massive role in the testing and exercising as well, didn't you? Yes, yeah. So I've I've delivered probably over one hundred and fifty exercises, uh, uh, many you know small scale tabletop type exercises to uh, to your huge you know, multi-agency exercises. Well, in essence, the Optrum training programme, which we were running monthly for, for three, well, we ran it for virtually five years and it's still running now because we've handed the baton over to other people and hopefully it's still a good product now. But uh, uh, <coughs> that had two days of a live exercise and it was a live exercise. Uh, so I've, I've delivered over 150 exercises. I'm really passionate about bringing all elements together mm. and uh, interoperability. Let's train people. Let's get people to have an, have an understanding of what, what, what your actions what they what impact they have on others and i used to i used to say to new recruits for example who, who would say to me you know when i i was a tutor in uniform then i became a tutor in cid then i became a trainer in ct so it must have been it must have been in, in my blood somewhere but i'd say to it when they criticize say custody suite staff or communication staff and things like that and i say well okay you go and work in that office for for, for a week or a, a month and uh get, walk in their shoes and find out what it's really like and yeah. i and i and I, I i now deliver a lot of like jessup training uh, you know joint emergency service interoperability program training and uh with police fire and ambulance type stuff and and it's still the same thing it's about having an understanding with the various agencies with each other so yeah. that you know so that your actions actually complement the others and, yeah. and 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 not undermine the others or yeah. you don't duplicate effort and that's just only the same as if you've got a firehouse team on the ground you've got human uniform assets you've mm. got cid assets you've, you've then got military coming uh, yeah, to offer yeah. support yeah. and other agencies like MI5, yeah. etc. You, yeah. you you want them all working together in concert. You don't yeah, want so you don't 
you don't want to work in, in isolation. And, and I find a lot of organisations still work in silos. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I always find the most challenging scenarios from an exercising point of view or from, an, from a live operational point of view is, is that flipping from the covert into the overt. Um, yeah. Because, um, so to give a scenario to those who are listening who don't know what, I, what I've just said is, so you, have, you might have a covert operation running against multiple uh, terrorist subjects over many weeks. Uh, each of those individuals has had a surveillance team following them around um, probably pretty much 24-7. Um, and uh, there's a whole range of other uh, covert assets uh, involved in, in those sorts of operations. Um, as well as probably covert firearms teams shadowing the surveillance teams. So logistically, it's massively complicated because you've got multiple subjects, probably in multiple geographical locations uh, with multiple uh, covert uh, resources, uh, which who all have to be able to communicate together seamlessly. And, uh, and we need to be aware of what exactly is going on within the operations room in order to brief senior decision makers. And then that scenario then builds towards a uh, scenario where those individuals are going to need to be um, detained uh, at gunpoint and arrested. And then it flips over into an overt uh, police operation with the full range of overt blue light services involved. So, um, yeah, I mean that that is a massive headache, isn't it? It certainly is. Yeah, and uh, and I do remember the times when uh, SB or CT would uh, at the very last minute when they need to go to the rest phase, then go and brief uh, detective inspector or chief inspector or superintendent uh, yes we believe warren ball is involved in the commission preparation instigation acts of terrorism you need to go and arrest him even though they've been running on him for for the last six months yeah. and they know everything about him yeah. they basically brief and, and, and that was that was what it was like in those days and i, and I know uh, for example our colleagues who work over in ireland for example that that you know that's happened uh, more times than not shall yeah, we yeah. say yeah, yeah. Uh, Whereas now we have progressed whereby the SIO for the over investigation actually has full sight of yeah. the covert deployment and the covert assets. Then it, then it brought in were the case officer, so it's usually a DS that will produce the case for court, mm. also comes onto our side of the fence as well and gets to see everything. And then you have it whereby the disclosure officer comes across to our side of the fence. Then you mm. might have it where you think, well, I need a couple of analysts who are fully aware of the covert side to work with the overt side in order to uh, move across the, you know, the intelligence into evidence. So it's yeah. actually, we've gone from, you know, a, a time when you didn't tell the investigators anything until the very last minute and you yeah. gave them very little. So yeah. now, now it's great to see that they actually work in concert and that yeah. and it's, and it's a far better yeah. working relationship yeah. that they have now. Yeah. So my, my observations on that and what you've just said there is 100% correct. Um, I personally, for what it's worth, and who gives a shit what I think really, but um, Personally, I think it's probably gone too far the other way in the sense that an awful lot of jobs um, are probably never going to reach the evidential threshold 
for prosecution, um, um, but they're given the same sort of gold-plated um, service evidentially, which I think ties up uh, a lot of detectives in, in jobs that arguably probably don't need to be dealt with evidentially. Um, and, and the reason I say that is, and I've made this point before on the podcast and in my book, I think, um, that we are we have been living through a gun and knife crime epidemic in the UK. Um, and I do think that the resources on counterterrorism from an investigative point of view are slightly excessive. And I do think we should probably allow a lot of these intelligence jobs to, to kind of progress um, as intelligence jobs. And then if there is, we don't want to go back to the old days when, as you describe, the poor old SIO gets gifted at the 11th or 59th minute with this job that's been running about four months and her yeah. bugger has to try and get his or her head around all of that stuff. You know, that we don't want that to happen. But I do think there probably needs to be a bit more of a balance there, possibly. Yeah, yeah, I can't disagree with that. I think you're right. But it's down to that appetite for risk, isn't it? You know, and sometimes, and we've had it, you must have had it, where you get that 4 p.m. phone call on a Friday, usually, uh, from, uh, let's say, some of our partners that we work with, who yeah. say, oh, we need to tell you about this. And it's yeah. like, it's it's as though they're passing the, the the problem child over to somebody else to deal with. So, yeah, yeah. so sometimes it's it's attitude uh, to carry risk. And yeah. you can understand when, you know, when you have incidents like, uh, you know, the Magisterina attack as a, as, a, as, a, as a fine example, you know, uh, and you look at the Magisterina inquiry now, which is now looking at every detail, rightly so. Uh, of the actions that people took, etc., in order that we can learn lessons and we can try to make sure this doesn't happen again. But there's a lot of focus now on, well, why didn't you know p- police had intervene on Salman Abidi earlier, for example? Why didn't the security service flag this person up earlier, etc.? And it's for other people to decide the rights and wrongs of that. But uh, it's it's sometimes you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't mm. uh, situation and when you've got so many uh, nominals you know and the mi5 uh, you know outline it quite openly how many nominals that they're currently carrying at the moment uh, which is a phenomenal amount you know uh, when you've got so many nominals it's it, it is difficult to do that balance of who are the ones that we've got to put our assets into and who are the ones that we need to uh, to let go at the moment yeah, I know. It's been a really interesting watching that journey over a long, long period of time, you know, where, where um, you know, looking at provisional IRA, for example, you, there was t- a tendency to let jobs run and run and run uh, to a point where you've got um, an absolutely cast iron case against them. And then once you decide, right, we've got enough to support a successful prosecution here, we'll scoop them up. Um uh, whereas with this lot, uh, you can't do that. Um, no. in, in all fairness, because they can go from uh, very early stage radicalization in their bedroom to building a bomb inside, you know, or going out and buying a a, a, a couple of knives from B and Q, whatever, and going and and trying to stab someone. Um, so very very difficult to make that judgment call, isn't it? Yeah, or even just hack, 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 you know, watch a few videos on YouTube uh, or any other platform and uh, self-radicalise, 
hire a car and then use it as a as a, a weapon of offence. You know, and it's it's you know from from the, that process from radicalisation to attack the window is much shorter now and I suppose that's that's the challenge for people to yeah. have an un- understanding with somebody like Salman Abidi the challenge there is the fact that were, were there flags were there red flags uh, and these are the questions that obviously the, the, the inquiry is looking at were there red flags that that could have been seen uh, yeah. earlier you know yeah, yeah. so obviously um, you know imagine the Manchester Arena attack was um, as well as being a, a a human catastrophe for all of the people uh, killed and injured and their f- families and all of that from a you know from a, a policing and security point of view it was a dark day wasn't it and and I've no doubt whatsoever that you know some of the some of the some of the stuff that you know I read I suppose some of the stuff that's come out of the inquiry the public inquiry um yeah, I think some of it's been a bit unfair, particularly some of the stuff around the actions of the emergency services. And and I don't think I suppose I suppose my my position and all of these things tends to be I don't think anyone who works in any branch of the emergency services comes to work on any day thinking, you know what, I'm going to do a really crap job today. I'm going to do a terrible job. Um, and I do feel for some of the, you know, criticisms of some of the emergency service in the back of that I mean where, where are you on all of that yeah I, I'm with you I just I just feel that our focus is far too much on individuals at the front end uh, and we were talked about options a minute ago I would I would love to see more uh, investment and time energy training exercising mm-hmm. with control room staff Mm. Uh, you know, like our upstream staff, when we invested in our upstream staff, like our fusion cell staff, when we invested in them, like our major incidents, uh, uh, you know, homes teams, we invest in them. Yeah. You know, control. Let's really invest in the control room staff because if you do that, and I, I, I just equate it to, let's say, if you ring uh, NHS Direct, for example, and you, you know you've got a bit of a chest pain, you're in NHS Direct. You get the other end person on the other end of the phone, and they are brilliant with you. And mm-hmm. they're, they're basically going through a checklist of things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what have you got? You got this, you got that, etc. Okay, then any, you know, and they're walking you through a checklist and they're, they're talking through it and they're really calm. And uh, you know, if you've ever had to ring 999, you'll find that the 999 operators are very similar. And they have a process for that. Well, I would love to see more investment on uh, critical incidents mm. uh, in control room staff. Because if you do that, and, and a couple of examples I'll use, which is direct from the inquiry, so I'm not saying anything that's out of turn here, but there's some criticism of the first paramedic that arrived at the scene, the, the NHS manager, that you know, the NWAS manager, the Northwest Ambulance Service uh, paramedic, who arrived at the scene and, and, and based himself at the entrance to the station and they were saying, well, why didn't he make his way upstairs, for example? Uh, you know, uh, he didn't link in with the police silver on, on the ground. Uh, the police silver didn't link in with him. Whereas if you've got a control room staff, he's going through a checklist who says, right, have you, uh, you know, you've arrived at scene. Uh, can you, ad- ad- have you identified the police silver? Who is it? 
you know, and go through a checklist of yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. And, get, and give them tips and advice of what to do. And I just think that yeah. our focus is too much on that paramedic. And, for example, that paramedic is highly trained at what they do, mm. uh, but it's still never been to a situation like that before. Yeah. And the criticism that he's had, I'm thinking, well, actually – he went there and did his best, and he's and, and it's human nature. You see something in front of you, you feel mm. as though you have to act. Where I suppose, okay, in hindsight, he should have stepped back and said, right, I'm going to go to the city room, for example, and I'm going to command from up here. I'll bring more assets in. I need more teams in, you yeah. know. And there were some discussions around Operation Plato being declared, etc. Uh, and uh, and, I, and I, I just feel that. For me, and I said it many times, and I put reports in that said it, Operation Plato set up the force duty officers to fail. Hmm. And it really did. If so, they, so just for those listening who don't know what that is, just explain what Plato is. I mean, I know what it is. but Yeah, Operation Plato is the cold, cold word, word. It's the operational plan and response from a marauding terrorist. At, uh, it was a marauding terrorist firearms attack, whereas now it's referred to as a marauding terrorist attack. And, it, and it's, a set of, it's a set of instructions and actions that a force duty officer should, should take. And, and the problem with that is th- there's about 12 or 14 items on this list of things mm-hmm. to do. And, and the first one of them is uh, set up a tripartite communication channel. So that's f- fire, ambulance, police. You must have a, a, a communication channel between them. Contact TGHQ, which is SF headquarters, for example, is on the mm-hmm. list. You know, uh, because you, you are the initial tactical firearms commander until the actual tactical firearms commander arrives on scene. So just imagine those three things, first of all. If yeah. you tried, you've got <laughs> you've got to be the initial tactical firearms commander. It's too much, isn't it? It's yeah. And that's only three things. And there's yeah. about 12 things on the list. So yeah. uh, you, whereas we're t- to me, and you know, like you've, you've done the Optrude training, mm. what do we say to the Optrude's managers? We say, look, roll back in your chair, mm. stand up and be a conductor of an orchestra. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Where really what they should be doing, and this is all about training and exercising, what they should be doing is standing up and going, right, you sit there, you sit there, you contact TGHQ, you contact uh, set up that communications channel and you then become a conductor of an orchestra yeah, but yeah. you can only get to that level if you're trained and exercise appropriately and i don't i don't feel that they are yeah and the reality as well uh warren is that particularly in the big forces like um you know the greater manchester west midlands merseyside etc the person who is in that in that role who's going to be the force control room inspector or chief inspector generally isn't it yeah um, they're also responsible for everything else going in the, on in, in the that, whole force in that force at that time so yes. if you happen if you happen to have say god forbid um a couple of stabbings uh within the sort of previous 60 minutes or or, or happening simultaneously or uh, a pursuit of a stolen vehicle that is you know you know a danger to the public and God knows what else, and which, and that happens. It happens all the yeah. time. In the, in, I mean, I used to spend a lot of my time in my f- last job in the force control room because I was running. I was the superintendent in charge of, you know, uh, uh, you know, r- kind of managing critical incidents and all that. Um, it can be manic in there. So if you get a Plato scenario cracking off, you're absolutely right. 
you need to be grabbing people literally almost out of corridors and sitting them down saying right your job is you you know do this do that blah 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 but I mean, I don't think I don't think they get exercised enough in that no, role. No, they don't. Uh, I, I wrote, and it's been mentioned a lot on, uh, you know, within the inquiry. But I I wrote Winchester Accord, mm. uh, and Winchester Accord was the major exercise that was held at the Trafford Centre in May uh, uh, 2016, uh, the year before the attack, and it involved thousands of people. It involved. Uh, the force duty officer was playing, fire service was playing, ambulance service was playing, military was playing, uh, uh, lots of assets. It was a fantastic exercise. And I've read it, you can Google it. There's, I've read stuff that says the exercise was a failure, blah, 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 because it showed that the force duty officer was overwhelmed. Well, no, that means the exercise worked because it showed reality that the yeah. force duty, op duty officer would get overwhelmed, you yeah. know. And I think, and it said, uh, oh, it showed a failure in uh, uh, the forward command post. It showed a failure in the tactical firearms commander being uh, getting to the scene and commanding the assets. No, mm -hmm. it identified areas for improvement, you yeah. know. Yeah. And, and and I think during exercises, I'm really, I'm really keen on, people being honest and if things go wrong let's mm. let's record them and if you look at all the lessons from winter record and there's there's lessons that are out there in the public domain there's there's lessons that are out there uh, uh within just the policing community there's what lessons out there just in the in the uh, ct community uh, which mm. the public obviously don't get to see but mm. there there were hundreds of lessons from that one exercise and many of those lessons were actioned some of them get filed you know and mm -hmm. some we used to split the lessons up into three so you'd have a local lesson so that could be something like an analyst at a desk needs a dual screen computer in order to do their analytical work because they need some they need the, the data on one screen and they need their charting stuff on the other screen so that's a local you know issue and that was that would go to the local commander for them uh, or manager of that office for them to implement changes in that area then you get your regional lessons so they're the ones that uh, for example you know, in the Northwest region, because Winchester Accord was in Manchester, in the Northwest region, we saw there was an issue with the, uh, you know, the support from Cheshire, Merseyside, Lancashire, etc. Not the support from them, but actually the interoperability between them. So let's, you know, there's a lesson there, there's some trading and there's some joint doctrine needs to be written mm. in relation to that. And then you may have some national learning and the national learning may be around some of the command protocols nationally, over, you know, dealing with CT assets. It could be the deployment of firearms assets, could be the deployment of military assets, etc. So uh, there's national lessons. So you've got all these lessons that mm. go off to all these different people. Uh, and then my, my concern with everything is that... Uh, what gets done with those lessons nationally and mm. why why does it take so long for us to learn you know for us to implement those lessons i've read debrief reports from hundreds of exercises mm. and and i've seen the same lessons come up time and time and time yeah, again yeah. and that that is something wrong with the organization yeah. Yeah. and then I'll, I'll use an example an example also uh organizational memory as well is a serious yeah. issue. So let's yeah. let's let's take one lesson. There was one lesson from Stockwell 
which basically outlined about briefings. The briefings, there were, I think there was something like, they found out there was something like 17 different briefings uh, on the day that John Charles Menes was shot. Uh, and they, those briefings, they broke them down to, some of them were like uh, a, a conversation in, in the corridor, some of them were like uh, a PowerPoint presentation briefing, some of them was a briefing to CT assets, some of them were a briefing to firearms assets, and they were like 17 different briefings. And what they said is that they need to professionalise the briefing structure. So what the Met did, rightly, they set up what was referred to as the DBT. The DBT was the dedicated briefing team. So that when they ran a job, uh, they would uh, uh, have a team that would be responsible for creating the briefings, managing the briefings, making sure that the briefings get delivered to the people that need those briefings, et cetera. And so they could control the briefings so that there's basically one narrative, one, one, one story, and because that's what you want. You want one narrative. You don't want people going off in tangents saying different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we had the, uh, the government austerity measures that hit the police and the CT network as well. Uh, and one of the first things that the Met disbanded, because it was a different management structure then, was the DBT. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so, so you have an issue, you identify a solution to that issue, you put that solution in place, you report it that this is what we've done, we've now improved things, it seemed to work, and yeah. then something else comes along in, in the future, which then disbands it, and we go yeah. back, and we're now back at where we were before, yeah. where well, the investigative pods do the briefings. Well, I'm 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 sorry to have to say that I think it's going to get a lot worse, and um, that's on the basis of the the fact that people are not staying in the police, people are not joining the police, uh, and seeing it as a long term career anymore because of all of the changes made under this government to pen pen conditions and pensions and and everything else. And you know, I speak regularly speak to. Uh, superintendents or chief superintendents who, who tell me sort of informally that you know they 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 have young cops joining now coming to meet them you know in their office to say you know welcome aboard so to speak and and they say well we're not going to be we're not planning to stay for a couple of years because uh you know it's just a sort of a tick in the box on the cv so yeah. my my great fear is that if we struggle with this corporate memory when there's lots of gray hair around then how much worse will it be if their people are walking out the door after three, four, five years, you know? Yeah, you, actually, you you know me, I'm a bit of a bolshy sod at times. And, mm. uh, and I've sat in many meetings where people have come up with something, oh, we need to do this, we need to do that. And I've said, no, we've tried that. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because of A, B, C and D. And like you say, if that corporate memory isn't able to capture that, mm. we're, we're going to be in a sorry state in years to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's I think it's ever so important that people um going back to your point about sort of testing and exercising for control room staff. I think what's in what's really important um is to is to have people experience that uh, overwhelming uh mental load uh to to know what it feels like, to to know what the physiological response your individual unique physiological uh, and psychological response is to that um so that when you know when you firstly uh, if you've experienced it you you can anticipate it um uh, you can find coping mechanisms to deal with it um and 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 uh you're not going to be surprised when it happens so so i often think of 
the only, there's only one or two times in my life when I have had a full-on, very temporary, thankfully, full-on mental meltdown. And that was uh, for a very short period of time, probably only maybe 20 seconds. But when you've experienced it, it's not nice. Uh, and that was in that was in a CT Opsrum exercise, which was a CT commander's course, teaching, as you know, teaching the CT commanders uh, to uh, to deal with an extreme threat and authorize potentially authorized critical shots to one or more terrorists. Um, and we had, I think the the, the scenario was, uh, I think it was three three individual terrorists out on the ground in three different locations uh, with surveillance teams and firearms teams. Uh, and my job as the option manager was to understand exactly what was going on on all three plots and then to capture the pertinent uh, information in a timely way and to brief the CT commander as to minute by minute what exactly is happening so he or, he or she can make a decision. And uh, there was one particular exercise when I, uh, it was really right at the last knockings, right at the last knockings, sort of within minutes of the terrorists being sort of pretend terrorists being shot. Um, and I went into a complete and utter me mental meltdown where if you'd asked me my name, I couldn't have told you what my name was. I literally stood there opening and closing my mouth like a goldfish. Um, and I started feeling a, a sort of a rising sense of panic, thinking I haven't a fucking clue what's going on anymore. I, I don't even know what my own name is. Um, and and then I managed to sort of sort of snap out of it. But in the debrief, I admitted to that. And there's a chap, do you remember Jonathan, Professor Jonathan Kriego? Yeah, yeah. And Jonathan used to do the debriefs a lot of the time. And he was he was the expert on all of this kind of stuff. And, and I said to him, you know, what would happen there? And he said, he said, well, that's what we're trying to do to you. We're trying to layer on layer on, upon layer upon layer of complexity so that you know how to deal with that. And um, so, yeah, it's, it, but it was, a, oh my God, it was a very, very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable experience. But, but uh, anyway, um, in terms of your business now, Warren, um, just describe, because obviously it'd be good, you know, give you an opportunity to give your business a plug now, because um, <laughs> you're kind of doing this in the private sector now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So when I retired, I set up, I set up two business, Warren Barlow Trading Limited, which I, I just use if anybody wants my services. So, uh, and, uh, uh, but that's, so that's just a, a side angle for myself as such. But uh, the other business is uh, a company called Interop Limited. And uh, it's, it's on that theme of interoperability, basically. That's why mm -hmm. we set it up. I set it up with uh, uh, a really good friend of mine. He's been a friend of mine for many years, a guy called Paul Flood. And uh, Paul runs his own successful IT businesses anyway. So he's, and he works for some major companies around the world with his IT infrastructure. So we set, it, we set the business up and uh, uh, I wanted, and, and Paul's the same, we wanted not just to be consultants. We didn't just want to be consultants. We wanted to be, we wanted to set up a, a, a tangible business, which has got a tangible business model basically. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, uh, and, and with his IT uh, expertise, uh, he's created a learning management system for us, mm. and uh, which encompasses uh, immersive exercise 
uh, uh, capabilities, uh, e-learning capabilities, uh, mm. and uh, and it's it's dynamic, drag and drop. It basically allows you to do what, but create whatever scenarios you want. Yeah. So we've been delivering training for a number of people now. I've done a number of police forces we've trained in the Met. Uh, for example, we've done training uh, around the world with other companies. So we work alongside other companies. There's a company called Cams, who we've worked with, C-A-R-M-S, who we've worked with, Samarkand, is another company uh, that uh, we work very closely with uh, on, on a lot of major uh, uh, jobs. Uh, a company with a guy called Simon Butterworth. I don't know if you're aware of Simon Butterworth. Yeah, I do know Simon. Well, I, don't, yeah. I know of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's got a company called GIAC, which is looking at uh, training analysts, uh, analytical training, etc., uh, and research training and stuff. So we, we work with Simon on a, on a lot of projects and stuff. Uh, so, yeah, we've delivered, delivered to the Met. We've delivered to uh, uh, some of the regional organised crime units around the country, and we've got some more to deliver. Uh, the CT network, we've been out to places like Tunisia. Uh, we've got some more work out in Tunisia coming up soon, and that's that's through the CT liaison over there. Uh, uh, we've done some work out in places like Ghana, uh, Panama, and, uh, and other countries, and, and uh, quite a bit in the UK with some major businesses and international companies. Some of them are on the security sector, so I don't want to mention, yeah. you know, the, the nature of the business. Yeah. Uh, other, other ones, you know, like uh, major companies like Balfour Beta, et cetera, we, we, we designed and delivered a, uh, a basic investigators course for the uh, investigators. They have a number of investigators that work at Balfour Beta that look at high-value high thefts and stuff like that from their sites and stuff and uh and we delivered a three-day course to the staff uh with an immersive exercise which took them through a full scenario because what we try to do with everything we do we try to bring reality to it so at the moment like last saturday i was delivering uh dynamic risk assessment training to a lot of staff on a site uh and uh it's it's about and it's all scenario based it's all reality based so i'll ask them okay what 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 have you had on site so what issues you've had? So, for example, it's it's a secure venues, and uh, but they've had people propping doors open. We've had it in the cops, haven't we? Propping doors open with fire extinguishers and things like that, leaving shutters open, uh, uh, using a grinder to cut locks off uh, uh, gates and stuff like that. So it's all it's quite low low key, but yeah. but then we go up to uh, we've been working with Cheshire Police with them in relation to firearms deployments and stuff like that. On, on sites and stuff so there's you know we've we've delivered quite a lot of stuff mainly policing security interoperability yeah. we've worked we've worked the fight work with the fire service the ambulance service and policing yeah. uh, i've got to say you you showed it to me uh about i don't know when was that probably six eight months ago something, something like, like that there. yes um and i've got to say i was super impressed with it uh i, I really was I, I think you've got to a world-class product there. You've got world-class, the quality shone through and you've clearly, uh, you know, taken all of that learning from a very long career in counterterrorism, uh, officer and, and exercise planning and, and distilled it into, into something that's really first class. So, so, uh, so yeah, so anyone out there who's listening to this and, and needs, feels that they could do with that type of very realistic, scenario-based uh, training for the staff, then, yeah, get in touch with work. Can they get in touch with you, Warren? 
Yeah, just drop me an email, warren.barlow at interopltd, interoplimited.com, and, uh, and uh, just send me an email. And uh, I'd gladly. Uh, well, speak to, I'll put speak your uh, I'll put your company your details and your company details in the description of this podcast, so people can uh, access it um, uh, in their own good time. So, listen, that's probably not a bad place to to draw a line. But uh, can I just say thanks, thanks a million, mate, for coming on. It's, I've really enjoyed it. It's been really fascinating. It's been nice to have a bit of a walk down memory lane, eating shit to you. Um, for for being on the naughty step and not coming on your course and when I should have come Um, but no it was a fantastic there was genuinely a fantastic course and I had to eat my words and 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 well done you Queen's Police Medal you got as well didn't you yeah I was yeah I was I still have to pinch myself to think that because I retired as a constable for those that are listening and think that you know I was this like assistant chief constable chief superintendent no I wasn't I was a constable and uh, and I'm I'm proud of my career and that, and uh, and I'm, I'm very. To be honest, I'm quite humbled the fact that I, I was awarded the Queen's Police Medal because there's not many constables that receive it. To be fair, but uh, but I I put the credit down to actually the managers I work with because they obviously put me forward for it, and uh, uh, I don't know them all, but but uh, who who was involved. But I do know people like Tony Porter. You probably knew Tony yeah, Porter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know uh, that uh, Tony Ball, Sarah Shelley, uh, and others. Who, who put me forward for it? So I'm, I'm, I'm more proud for my family more than anything else. Yeah, and, uh, well, you, you, and you deserve to be, mate. Uh, and you, and I know, and I've seen you in action, and you punched way, way above your weight, you know. In, in I don't know, I'm a bit heavy, you know, in terms of <laughs> in terms of rank, and you know, uh, but uh, and 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 we all we all sort of agreed, didn't we, that you know, in that environment, um, rank is not it's not about rank, is it? It's about the role, isn't it? And um, so. So yeah, well done on everything you've done. Um, congratulations on your QPM, and I wish you the very best of luck with the business. So, thank you, uh, Ian. Hopefully, uh, I'll be up at your neck of the woods at some point. And we can grab a beer. Yeah, definitely. You take care, Ian. Thank All you right, very much. You take care. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye. Cheers. Bye bye. If you enjoyed my podcast, I'd be really grateful if you could go on Apple Podcasts if you use Apple, and give it a five-star review and maybe add a few words telling me what you like about it, what you'd like to see more of, or what you'd like to see less of. If you use Spotify, you can give a five-star review. You can't write anything, but please give me a five-star review on Spotify. And if you've read my book and you've enjoyed it, can you please, please go on Amazon and review it and add some comments? I'd be really, really grateful. Finally, if you want to send me an email, you can do that um, via my website, which is www.tjfbook, or one word, tjfbook.com. And I promise you, I'll reply to you. And finally, if you want to join the Tangle Juliet Foxtrot Facebook site, you will find it, funnily enough, on Facebook. Thanks ever so much. Bye. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs> Ooh, 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 ooh.